0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 346 of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Respo- Report is sponsored today by the ARC Group. The ARC Group is a publisher of my latest book, 2016, The Year in Corporate FCPA Enforcement, where I take a look at the most interesting FCPA enforcement year in several You can find out more information on my book at the ARK Group's website, which is ARK-Group. That's ARK-Group.com. So take a look and check it out. Today I have Michael Skopitz. Mike is a senior associate at Miller & Chevalier, and he is here to talk about the firm's summer 2017 FCPA report. As most of my listeners will know, this is an excellent resource. I've called upon several uh, lawyers from Miller to talk about it in the past. And today, Mike is going to visit with us. We're going to look at some of the macro trends that uh, Miller has identified in the first half of the year, including uh, numbers, uh, resolutions, declinations, investigations, what significance, if any, they might demonstrate, his key takeaways from the Lindy and CDM Smith declinations, We take a look at the Lorenzo guilty plea in the FCPA case, and also his take on the Kokesh case and what it may mean for FCPA enforcement going forward. It's a fascinating discussion. It's an excellent resource. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. As always, with uh, Miller and Chevalier and their FCPA reports, it's available for free. This is Tom Fox. This is the FCPA Compliance and Ethics Report, which is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, you are in for a real treat because I have with me Mike Skopitz. Mike is a senior associate at Miller & Chevalier, and he is here to discuss what I think is one of the uh, top reports of the FCPA uh, presented annually and quarterly by Miller, the FCPA Summer Review 2017. So, Mike, uh, welcome. Thank you very much for taking the time to visit with me. And most thankfully, thanks for uh, helping to to put this summer review together.
1: Uh, Tom, thank you very much for having me. Um, And thanks for being a a fan, if I may use the word, and an advocate of our FCPA review. Um, That's something that we put a fair amount of work into, and, and we're glad that you and others in the industry find it useful.
0: Well, Mike, I'm not only a fan of the report, but I'm a fan of the firm. I think you guys uh, put a lot back for the uh, FCPA and even greater compliance community, and this is a small part of it. So, uh, thank you. I'm glad to, to. I've not met you, but I'm uh, really appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking about it because I really want to get your perspective. One of the things that many compliance practitioners worried about after the election was where would FCPA enforcement be going. We didn't have uh, as much FCPA enforcement in the first half of the year as we saw in the record-setting year of 2016, but I thought we had some, some fairly significant developments. But I was wondering, really, from your perspective and the perspective, I guess more appropriately, of the FCPA or Miller's FCPA Summer Review 2017, uh, were there any macro trends that uh, you guys identified that you thought were significant for the compliance practitioner going forward?
1: You know, it's interesting. If you had asked me the same question uh, a month ago, um, there would have been less enforcement actions, less new investigations, and less declamations to talk about than there are today. Um, as, as you know, and as I think we might discuss a little later on, um, we, we've seen a little more activity out of both the SEC and the DOJ even in the past month or so. At a macro level, however, what's important to remember is that we can't judge the, the the work performed by either of these agencies, by the DOJ or SEC under the Trump administration, um, and you know, let's maybe put that in quotes, under the Trump administration, just over what we're what we've seen from the agencies over a six-month period. Um, as, as, as you know and as I think a lot of your listeners understand, uh, a lot of these investigations, a lot of these efforts take much longer than mere months to percolate up to the point where we know about it or we see a resolution. So the most important macro trend probably is the fact that we are seeing continued activity from both agencies, from both uh, the DOJ and the SEC. Um, We're seeing some resolutions, even though there was certainly a lull in resolutions uh, between February and uh, July, at least on the corporate front. Um, We're seeing more declinations and we're seeing more investigations initiated by both agencies. So the most important macro takeaway is probably that it seems, for the most part, it's business as usual when it comes to SCP enforcement, Um, although certainly on a micro level, uh, we are seeing some perhaps trends or distinctions um, in what's happening um, specifically over the last three months or over the last six months of the year.
0: So one of the things that uh, I really appreciate you guys do is one of the early bar charts you put in just shows the raw numbers of enforcement actions. And I like that simply because it presents the numbers as they have uh, developed over the years. Uh, It's a 10-year running chart, and and if one compared 2016 numbers to 2017 to date, they might uh, not understand without really the the fuller explanation of what you just gave us, Mike. And uh, uh, so I certainly appreciate the raw numbers as you as they are presented in the bar chart, but also appreciate your comments that we really need to sit back and take a little bit longer um, view. And but you're absolutely right. Literally within the last 30 days, we've had some significant activity uh, going forward that that might have changed uh, several different things. So. Um, Really, anything you see or rather, once again, the report sees in terms of resolutions, declinations, or uh, investigations, or is it really this kind of business as usual over at the the Department of Justice?
1: Well, we are seeing a few interesting, uh, or we've made a few interesting observations that we've discussed in the report, and we are seeing some activity that that does suggest um, some maybe changes in how... Uh, the DOJ and the SEC are approaching certain types of uh, certain types of enforcement actions right now. For example, what we've seen over the last uh, year or so, uh, from even a little more since the spring of uh, 2016, is a rise in declinations. And declinations, of course, are um, at least as we define them in the report, uh, they're enforcement actions in which uh, the enforcement agency, be it the DOJ or SEC, uh, decide to not uh, to close investigations without actual enforcement. Um, what we are seeing is a rise in declinations, and looking also at some statements, especially some recent statements from Trevor McFadden, who is uh, currently uh, o- oversees uh, the fraud section within the Department of Justice's criminal division. The Department of Justice seems to be taking a harder look at the cases that are in the pipeline, open cases in the pipeline. And the rise in declinations is signaling to us that perhaps for those cases where the allegations or where the potentially improper activity is is more borderline, the department is choosing to close those investigations in favor of other enforcement activity or in favor really of of whatever else they're working on. Um, That's number one. Um, As far as uh as, as far as the DOJ's pilot program which is I, again this is and I think it's important for us to remind ourselves that we're not just talking about activity under the Trump administration we are taking a broader view of things um the pilot program which the department of justice put in in april of 2016 and then extended after its one year trial period for further evaluation we're seeing more self-disclosures by companies to the Department of Justice under the pilot program, and we're seeing a additional uh, declinations and additional enforcement activity by the department under the pilot program. So at least from the department's perspective, it appears that the pilot program is working, and uh, for the companies who are self-reporting, it is perhaps providing that additional level of predictability that was a little harder to achieve before then.
0: So we had uh, two declinations with disgorgement, uh, Lindy Gass and CDM Smith. I found those to be actually, the more I studied them and thought about them, pretty significant in uh, the factual recitation. And uh, what the Department of Justice was communicating to the greater compliance community uh, that would garner a declination. Was there anything in, of significance that the report noted uh, in either of those two declinations with disgorgement? Um,
1: what, what, what we've noticed, what we noticed about both of them, and what we noted was that the factors that the department cited for entering into these types of resolution mechanisms here, the declinations of disgorgement, are the same that they recited for every single previous declination with disgorgement on record, of which, of course, there aren't that many over the last year or so. Um, We're seeing that uh, the the activity is certainly activity that could have been pursued in other means, but it seems that the DOJ really is in, in situations where there's self-reporting in situations where the, the remediation by the companies seems to be above board and serious. The department does seem to be using these declamations with disgorgement as an earnest enforcement tool in place of, say, a non-prosecution agreement, which is probably, you know, a close equivalent in some ways that it may have used previously.
0: Does that, uh, as um a lawyer defending or called upon to advise companies who may be in the situation where they have uh, believe they have sustained an, an FCPA violation. Does that work into any of your decision making calculus on advising a company of a decision to self disclose or not? Or do you has it not changed really your calculus at all?
1: Um, I, 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 it certainly has to the extent that. It's it's an additional factor that the companies should evaluate. It, it it does introduce a little more predictability than there may have been previously um, in the in the determination of whether to self-disclose to the Department of really to both agencies, but to the Department of Justice specifically here. Um, and certainly there is some attraction in knowing that the resolution, while short of a pure declination with no financial or other repercussions, might still be. A resolution that's short of some sort of a criminal enforcement action, and yet, uh, you know, with a financial penalty only, close an investigation. So, adding that to the to the to the DOJ's toolkit seems to have both helped the DOJ um, and helped companies that are potentially either considering self-reporting or already talking to the DOJ in knowing that there is this additional other option out there as a potential resolution mechanism.
0: So, Mike, now if I could turn to um, a guilty verdict that the Department of Justice uh, was able to uh, obtain this year and um, against a fellow, and I always butcher this name, um, but it's, I'm going to say Ning Lap Singh, uh, but that may be as far afield as, as Tom Fox. Um, but we had a um, Chinese billionaire uh, convicted of uh, FCPA violations. Involving the UN ambassador from the Dominican Republic, Francis Lorenzo. And I was wondering if uh, you, uh, what you guys saw of significance, if anything, in that the department had uh, finally won an, an FCPA case.
1: Um, it, it's, it's definitely interesting. It's definitely something worth following. Um, what's And and the fact that they've achieved a jury verdict is in itself notable because we don't see that many jury verdicts uh, under the FCPA. Uh, I would say that what's particularly interesting here is yet to come, and that's really the sentencing. And it's really the sentencing of both Lorenzo, the Dominican diplomat, um, and uh, of uh, Mr. Wu, um, I believe his name is pronounced Wu Lapsang, but the, the Chinese uh, the Chinese billionaire. Okay. The reason it's particularly interesting is that we saw uh, we saw we saw a sentencing not too long ago of Dimitri Harder in the context of a bribery scheme involving an EBRD, um European Bank for Reconstruction and Development official, where Harder who cooperated in the UK prosecution of that EBRD official was still sentenced to five years uh, by, by, the Eastern, by the federal court in Philadelphia, the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. And uh, against, again, even though we don't see too many guilty pleas and we don't see too many sentencings, it still seems relatively high to what we had seen in the past. And it's going to be interesting to see Lorenzo, for example, uh, pled guilty to CPA counts and his superseding indictments, both to giving bribes and receiving bribes, he was both uh, receiving certain bribes and then acting as a conduit for others, according to the plea documents. Um, so it'll be interesting uh, what that looks like, especially interesting what the government sentencing recommendation might look like um, for uh, for Mr. Wu. It certainly, from what what I've seen, it was a really contentious trial. Right. Um, and it, it, again, it'll be very interesting to see what that sentencing recommendation might look like, what the sentence might look like. We also just recently saw a government sentencing memorandum against uh, the former mines minister of Guinea, uh, who is accused of taking over $8 million in bribes. Um, the, the prosecutors there are asking for between uh, 12 and a half and 15 year, and a half, years and a half in prison. So. Against kind of this backdrop of shorter sentences, um, with several coming, you know, with several sentencing coming up, it will be particularly interesting to see what 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 we may draw or what trends we may see from the government's arguments and the government's sentencing memoranda for these different individuals.
0: Um. That's really a great point, and uh, I think the longest FCPA sentence uh, 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 given out for someone who went to trial was 15 years um, in the Esquenazi case, so I don't know if we would reach that level here, but uh, absolutely agree with you. It's going to be fascinating to see really both sentences going forward. We had a U.S. Supreme Court case, although not an FCPA case. It certainly has pretty significant implications for the FCPA, and that was the Kokesh case, which um, in this case, the Supreme Court restricted SEC's disgorgement claims by applying a five-year statute of limitations. I was able to have a a fairly lengthy podcast with uh, your fellow co-Millerite, Mark Bone, on this, uh, so I don't want to completely rehash that, but I did want to uh, just get your personal observations because everybody has, has really picked out different things from it. And I know Mark and I uh, have, have really thought and talked about profit disgorgement over the last couple of years. But were there any angles that really intrigued you or that you thought could be useful in discussions with clients going forward?
1: Well, uh, I will say that Mark has certainly dug into the decision and and some related issues in more depth than I have. So uh, whatever wisdom he has imparted um, to you, I, I certainly would defer to. Um, that said, uh, I think the main takeaways for me are that, um, for one, it's certainly the the KOKES the decision certainly introduced more predictability, predictability particularly for defendants or for companies who are uh, considering whether to self-disclose or not. Uh, it'll, certainly, uh, it'll certainly also put some, or it already has put some increased pressure on the SEC to, uh, to take certain actions uh, more, uh, just with more efficiency or more speed. Um, the, the SEC may be less willing to give extensions to companies. Um, we will probably be seeing more tolling agreements. Uh, from uh, that the SEC wants uh, companies to sign. And and really, when we talk about tolling agreements, I think it's very important to remember that the effect of the co decision in the FCPA space will probably not be as broad as the actual holding may suggest because we already have companies signing tolling agreements with the SEC to extend the limitations period. Um, but... There will be companies who may reconsider decisions to self-disclose if conduct is particularly old, or you know, maybe beyond or nearing the limitations period. Um, and uh, will it'll be interesting to see how or whether it may affect the SEC's decision to go to district court versus administrative proceedings? Of course, this will be one factor of many, but but generally, it will affect the dynamics and negotiations between companies and the SEC.
0: So, Mike, if I could now, I'd like to turn to some of the international developments that the report detailed. And I was particularly intrigued by uh, your recitation about uh, ISO 3701, the standard on anti-bribery management systems, how certain countries have um, suggested or put into effect that uh, they would make a certification um, uh, significant in their countries. And I think you detailed uh, Peru, Singapore, and Philippines but what I was really more interested in were the analysis that you guys had really in the last couple of paragraphs. Uh, you also d- uh, noted uh, some of the larger multinational and domestic U.S. companies that either have received certification, have said they received certification, or said they're going to seek certification. But you really bring up some very interesting and I find troubling questions um, in your last paragraph. And I was wondering if we might be able to, to visit about that. And really the first sentence, I think uh, – said it as succinctly as I've heard it said, which is the certification announcements to date reflect an opaque certification process, suggesting a lack of uniformity as to the process itself or as to the accreditation or qualification of the certifying bodies. And that really encapsulates for me one of the most significant questions and frankly criticisms I have, which is on the certifying bodies of this, and and how would kind of Miller evaluate that if uh, if a client uh, came to you and said, uh, our counterparty, our subcontractor, our proposed third-party agents got ISO 3701, uh, should we still do uh, the types of due diligence that we've done before? Uh,
1: That's a fantastic question. And I think what's important to remember is that even though this is a standard that's that came out of ISO, this international standards body, which is certainly eminent in, in many different fields and industries. Um, if somebody came to me and said, this this counterparty, this potential acquisition target, uh, this potential investment target is ISO certified under the standard. Should we do the same uh, due diligence as otherwise? My answer would invariably have to be yes, because the due diligence that we do, the, the issues we look at, Um, are specific to our benchmarks under our understanding and analysis of the FCPA and potential exposure relating to the FCPA. So while the ISO standard may be useful for companies to maybe standardize certain processes, uh, maybe bring certain processes up to par with with the anti-bribery elements of the standard, we have to satisfy ourselves that what we see as potential points of exposure under the law don't introduce risk. So yes, the documentation relating to the standard may be very useful because it may help inform our analysis, but really our analysis would be independent of the standard itself.
0: And, and, and that, to me, you've encapsulated several of the concerns I've had. One is that uh, ISO is really looking at the paper program and that uh you, you're right that that might be valuable to see do we do they have the policies and procedures in place but it doesn't give uh, it certainly doesn't meet the requirements of i think the 2012 guidance fcpa guidance around actually doing compliance or uh, anything close to the operationalization uh nature of the 2017 evaluation of corporate compliance programs from the department of justice um so um, uh, I think you're spot on that uh, it might be a nice to have. It may indicate that, uh, you know, perhaps they have a commitment to it. But in terms of protecting uh, your client or protecting a, a party sitting across the table with someone who has a uh, 3701 certificate, I just I can't see that it brings that level of comfort yet. And and I think the last word, your last word, yeah, is,
1: is key here. This is. Both of our points, I think, are not to say that down the road, it might not become a much more useful tool or a much more useful measure of of compliance and of adherence to certain standards. But until there's more clarity in the certification process, until there's more certainty in the bodies that are actually issuing these certifications, uh, it's just not clear uh, whether there's enough certainty in the system um, for us to say, well, the standard actually represents something meaningful under the FCPA and under the FCPA guidance and guidance documents that you just alluded to.
0: So, Mike, unfortunately, uh, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if any of the listeners uh, wanted to contact you directly and follow up on any of the points you raised. uh, Could they email you, and if so, how would they do it?
1: Um, Of course, absolutely. Um, My email address is my first initial, M, my last name, S-K-O-P-E-T-S, At Milchev, M-I-L-T-H-E-V dot com. Um, My bio is on the firm's website. So certainly, um, I or probably any of my colleagues would be more than happy to to um, explore any of the issues I just talked about or or anything related to them.
0: Well, Michael, um, this has been a fascinating discussion. I've been uh, visiting with uh, Michael Skopetz. Michael is a senior associate at Miller & Chevalier. We've been visiting on the uh, firm's FCPA Summer Review 2017. It's a phenomenal document. It's available uh, for free on the firm's website. Of course, I'm going to link to it in the show notes. It's a resource that's uh, almost a must-have for every compliance practitioner. It's put together by um, a group of, of lawyers listed Uh, on the report. uh, Once again, a great resource, and I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with me today, Mike. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast. as, as It would help in our rankings and also get out the word about the only podcast which takes a look at FCPA Compliance on a weekly basis. Also, as part of the Compliance Podcast Network, the only Compliance Podcasting Network would help get the word out as well. If you have any questions, you can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, and I hope you'll join me next week for another episode.